I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. Today, let me speak to the governor... One hour answering your questions. Call 801-575-8255. Live from the studios of KSL News Radio in Salt Lake City, it's Let Me Speak to the Governor. Good afternoon, and thank you for joining us for Let Me Speak to the Governor. Obviously, Gary Herbert is not our governor anymore. We're joined today by Utah Governor Spencer Cox. And we are so excited to be joined by him today. You can call us with your questions today, 801-575-8255. I'm Maria Shalaios, your host for the program. Governor Cox, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for taking a part of your very busy day and sharing it with us. Maria, it's great to be with you. And I thought I was off the hook for a minute. I was going to no, go you're call not Gary off the hook. And, and get him on the line. Nope, 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 no. My apologies for that. I'm not <laughs> sure where the mix-up was. So, Governor Cox, today is such an exciting day because you have actually told people this morning that more people are eligible to receive a COVID vaccine, and that's exciting. Anyone now over 65 years old can get a vaccination. Yeah, Maria, this is a, a really big deal for us. And, and the best part of this announcement is it comes a, a week and a half before we anticipated we would get there. And, and that's a result of, of two things. One, us getting more vaccines. And two, uh, our team's being better at getting those vaccines into the arms of people that, that need them. And so, as you know, we've been focused on, on those 70 years of age and over. And as of this morning, 62% of, of our, our state population that age and older have already gotten their first vaccine. About 15% have gotten their second vaccine. And we're, we're starting to see a little bit of a, a slowing on demand with mm-hmm. that age group. Although this, certainly there are still those, if you're over the age of 70, you still get to get the vaccine, still get get your appointment, go to your appointments. Many of them are scheduled out over the next week, but it, it was time uh, it, to to increase that, and we want demand to always outpace supply. So now we've gone to, to age 65, and uh, there's there's going to be a lot of people wanting to get those, those vaccines, and we encourage you to be patient, and again, check with your local health department on their websites. You can go to uh, coronavirus.utah.gov, and, and there's a list of links you can click on to schedule your appointments. This is a sign of optimism. It makes people hopeful, but it also makes them ask questions like, well, when do I get the vaccine? When can I get it? Is there any way just to really target a timetable? When do you think the next group will be able to get a vaccine? Well, we've already announced the next group, and, and that next group are, are, are people with significant underlying health conditions. And those health conditions are listed. They're very specific. Again, you can go to coronavirus.utah.gov and, and 
click on the, the links to those those comorbidities or those underlying health conditions. And, and those will begin on March 1st. Now, for, for everyone else, as I've said a few times, it's, it's really a math issue. How many are coming in? And uh, we, we learn every week that we're getting more and more, and we, 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 we kind of have some projections out there as to what those will be. Um, but, but, but pay attention because we will be backing those down basically based on age. So after that, that those comorbidities, those, those underlying health conditions come on, then we'll next go to, to age 60 uh, to 64. And there, there are still some under, other underlying health conditions that increase your risk of COVID, but, um, but aren't quite as serious as the ones we've announced before. So at some point, and the health department will let us know this is all risk-based, that we will include those other underlying uh, health conditions, uh, you know, somewhere 55 to 60, somewhere in there. And and that's that's how we're going to do it. So Mm -hmm. we'll we'll try to let people know at least a couple weeks ahead of time. And uh, that's the the good news. And and I'm just excited because we were originally, you know, targeting March 1st to move to 65, but our teams have just been so good that, that they said, yep, we're ready to go. Let's let's move it up and let's get it done. So what would be your best guess then on that next group, 60 to 64? Yeah, so so our best guess for 60 to 64 would be sometime probably mid-March. Um, I it would would be my best guess, maybe mm-hmm. maybe third week in March. Again, depending. A lot of this will also depend on a, approval of the Johnson and Johnson vaccine and and how much uh, production they have they have been able to do ramping up for that. So we, we're expecting to have approval for the the Johnson and Johnson vaccine by the by the end of February, sometime in that time frame and and that will that will help us get a better feel for how quickly we can uh, we can move up those those other timelines but what i will say is by moving 65 up to now that that just inherently moves up everybody else too the biggest question is i'm sure for you is when can we get back to normal right yeah yeah, yeah, we hear hear that all the time, and, and what I will say is sooner rather than later. I, I I know President Biden yesterday I think said something about by Christmas, and I had to laugh because there, that's not that's not happening. Um, it's it's <laughs> going to happen much much sooner than that, um, and and I I do suspect by by late spring early summer we will we will be back to normal. And the truth is we're we're so much closer to being back to normal now. Um, in fact, if you you look at the transmission index, which is something that we've been using to guide us for uh, you know for many many months, um, we we haven't paid much attention to it because things have been so bad that we've just been in high transmission. But we have several counties now that are in moderate transmission as of today and, and a couple counties that are in low transmission which which changes we don't have many restrictions here in the state of Utah but we do have a few and, and this uh, this changes those restrictions in those counties and at the direction we're headed with uh, with case counts coming down with our percent positivity coming down with so much more testing than we've ever had before and uh, and with hospitalizations coming down that uh, that that we will we will see uh, people be able to do a lot more more um, than than they they could do, you know, a month ago. And that will be happening over the next few weeks. Right. That one big group that has been wondering for over a year now when they can plan their weddings are the ones that are trying to plan. And planning is just excruciating. Um, Just trying to decide how you could uh, have a wedding reception and do so safely. So I know that group, my son included, is, is really frustrated at this moment. 
Yeah, it's it, those big congregation settings are the the most difficult, right? Those those are the ones where we've had super spreader events, well documented super spreader events. We've unfortunately had loss of lives for those those mass congregation events, but we've gotten so much better at at those too with masks and and other things. And so that's 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 it. I, I mean, I, I I really anticipate that that a lot of those spring weddings, um, people will be very happy with their ability. And if you look at that transmission index now again all of this information is available at coronavirus.utah.gov uh, you can go on there and see uh, how things are changing and and all of the projections are very very positive we all have our fingers crossed and governor the callers are starting to call in now we're going to take their calls take a quick break the number for you to call with your questions 801-575-8255 you can also text us at 57500 we'll be right back with your question i'm dave Colley investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. And thank you for joining us for Let Me Speak to the Governor this afternoon. I'm Maria Shaleos along with Utah Governor Spencer Cox. And we are taking your calls, 801-575-8255. We have James on the line. And good afternoon, good afternoon, James. How can we help you today? Well, good afternoon, Maria, and good afternoon, Governor Cox. Anyhow, basically, I want to discuss something other than uh, COVID vaccines. With all the, the coldness sweeping the middle of the nation and and ver- I heard on the news that uh, various uh, state governors, you know, they they were all affected from where I grew up in Kansas, Quran, down to other states. They were discussing energy policy, and I myself believe in all conventional forms, oil, natural gas, um, clean coal, et cetera, et cetera, including green. I'm not ruling it out, but I just believe our nation needs a complete balanced portfolio on energy policy, and I just want to uh, hear your views on energy policy. Well, James, thank you for the question, and it's great to talk to you. I, I know in a lot of these shows we have longtime listeners and first-time callers, but you're you're a longtime caller, and I'm a first-time responder, so <laughs> I, I'm excited to, to talk to you, James, down in Provo, and, and I appreciate the question. Um, I, I have actually had several conversations over the past uh, the past couple days with uh, with Rocky Mountain Power and and with UAMPS about what what is happening, especially in Texas, where where they've had some some real significant problems. You, you've, I'm sure you've seen the headlines and and maybe some. Of the videos down there it's just it's just crazy and talked about you know how, how are we preparing for that type of eventuality the, the good news for us here here in utah is there's a couple things the first is exactly what you said we have a we have a much more balanced portfolio and that really is important what you talked about energy security energy independence and uh, making sure we have multiple energy sources is is so important in these things when, when as i've as i've been able to dive into the details there there, there were a couple things things that failed. I mean, mean, first and foremost, especially in Texas, right? They're not 
used to this type of cold weather and their systems aren't designed for it. And so the, the failures that we've seen have, have actually been failures in, in just about every facet of, uh, of energy, even with a balanced portfolio. So it, a lot of headlines around wind turbines that, that haven't been turning. Um, th- that's, <laughs> that's a lot because the wind doesn't blow as much in the winter. So, so uh, th- that type of power during the winter months in just about every state is always going to be a challenge. And so that that's part of it. There are cold weather packages for those those turbines um, that that we have here in Utah and other places that they don't have there. So that was a problem. But natural gas also the the wellheads can freeze up, and that's that's one of the problems they had there that made it difficult for natural gas. Uh, coal has performed better in most of those states, although some coal did I, I believe got wet in some of those areas, and they were unable to uh, to, to burn it in the, in the ways that they they normally would. But but also having other sources and, and, and other other places available. There were lots of states that had extremely cold weather that haven't had the problems that Texas had. And we are part of a consortium here in Utah with, with many states here in the West um, that allows us, if something were to happen like that, will allow us to get power from them as well. And so we're, we're, we're in a little better spot than they are, uh, than Texas is right now. In fact, a much better spot because we are prepared for those cold. We have had days where we're 20, 30, 40 below zero and, and haven't had those same power issues. But, but you are right. Energy policy matters. Uh, we have to have a balanced energy per- portfolio. And, and, and the United States needs to be energy independent. And that's something we've been able to achieve over the past few years. And, and uh, we, we really can't go back on that. And it would be a mistake uh, for the new administration to, to take us back. So thank you for the question. And I, I just want to assure Utahns that, that we're having these conversations and that we're well prepared. James, thank you so much for your call today. Let's go to David, who is in Orem. And David has a question about the COVID vaccines. David, go ahead. Uh, back in December, when they were uh, setting up who was going to get what shots when, diabetics were listed to go with the age group 65. That's not been recreated. My wife is a type 1 diabetic. There's lots of type 2 diabetics, but the type 1 diabetic is the most severe. My wife's on an insulin pump, has bad lungs, and if she doesn't get the COVID shot, if she gets COVID, she'll die. Can we get type 1 diabetics added to the 65 age group? Thank you, David, for the uh, for for the question and, and for the the concern. So we we have um, we do have some uh, some approvals, I, I believe, and, and I need to check with my team. Um, give give me just a, just a second. I'm I'm looking on this one. Um, we announced today, of course, 65 plus um, diabetic. Okay, sorry. Yes. Now let me get this straight. So those with uncontrolled diabetes, and and it's not not everyone with with diabetes, but those with uncontrolled diabetes, which is are those with an A1C of nine percent or higher, um, those do qualify starting March first. Okay, so that didn't change. When we announced that back in in uh, in January, we announced that those would begin on March first, as well as 65 plus. Now, while we've been to move the 65 plus up till today, um, we're, we're sticking with our promise that we would start those on March first. And so, those with uncontrolled diabetes, again with an a- A1C of nine percent or higher, this is a very technical uh, diagnosis, will qualify. Now, there are lots of other people with with uh, with diabetes that don't qualify yet. And, and this is this is really tough. And this is what I was referring to earlier. Um, we uh, we have uh, our our medical experts are are doing their very best in a risk assessment. 
assessment. And you know, I, I'm, I'm the same way. I have lots of family members that that uh, that, that have very serious health conditions that didn't qualify yet. And uh, and and we're, what they're trying to do is figure out, okay, who is at most risk for dying? And and age is by far, by far, the biggest indicator of those that are most at risk. So if you're 65 or over, that represents a about 77% of the deaths in our state. I mean, that's that's a huge number. Uh, three quarters of the deaths in our state have come from those ages 65 and over. And so that's 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 where the focus has to be because we just have a limited number. And now on March 1st, again, these other comorbidities that that are so serious, like uncontrolled diabetes, that will raise um, raise the level so that in your risk profile, uh, those people look a lot like a, a 75 year old when it comes to the the rate of hospitalizations or death. And so. So that's what we're trying to do. I, I wish it, it would be so much easier if we could just open it up to everyone. But uh, the, the next move, as we move down to 60, we will be looking at all of the rest of those risk profiles, including people with uh, additional people with type 1 and type 2 diabetes, and uh, including them. So, so I hope that that's helpful. Again, you can go to coronavirus.utah.gov and look at that list and see if your, your spouse or, um, or other family members qualify. David, thank you for your call today. Let's go to Alan, who is calling from Provo this morning. Morning. And Alan has a question on education funding. Good afternoon, Alan. Very good afternoon, and good afternoon, Governor. I appreciate you taking my call. Um, I'm I'm curious to know what you're looking at from an education perspective, and I'm going to hit a couple things uh, to kind of tie this in because um, it kind of tells a story. Um, Utah currently has ranked dead last in education funding per child for decades, and and it's and it's just a joke um, to me because we say how big we are for families. And currently we're, I, I believe I heard Provo and Salt Lake are in the top five for top cities in the country. Everybody's moving here, which is pushing house price, housing prices up. Um, in addition, we have a, with, with the Republican majority, we have, and <clears throat> we have an aspect where we give big breaks tax breaks, incentives for businesses to come to Utah. And we also give anywhere from 80 to $150 million a year, depending on the year, away in sales tax exemptions for businesses. And yet we say how big we are on families and, and the environment and our people, but we, we don't fund education and we certainly don't fund our, our infrastructure. When you look at the Highway Patrol uh, I believe they've been working with this, the same budget for the last 20 years, and yet the population has done, you know, at least doubled, if if not increased further than that. And I'm just trying to figure out when is Utah going to choose to use tax money and to use taxes to fund infrastructure to improve our way of life. Thank you. thank you for the thanks. Thanks for the question, Alan. And uh, the the, the, um, the I, I want to. You said a, a lot of things, and I'll, I'll try to respond to as many of them as I can. Um, so education has been a really important part of. Uh, uh, it was a part of our campaign. It was a part of our budget proposal, and the legislature has responded in a big way. But but I think you have to understand too the the underlying conditions with which we're talking about. So we have more kids per capita than any state in the nation. That's a that's a, going to be a challenge for any state. So so you start there. But the second piece 
piece of this is also important because the federal government owns um, almost 70% of the land in our state. So, so you're wondering, what does that have to do with education? Well, it has everything to do with education. In, in most states, um, in, and if you've lived other places, you know this, uh, most of education is funded through property tax. But when, when, when 70% of the state is not taxable, uh, does not pay any property tax, that's a huge challenge. When you combine that with having more kids per capita than anywhere else in the state, that is also a huge challenge. We are always always going to be near the bottom when it comes to per capita spending because of those problems. I, I would encourage you to look at another metric, and that is effort. Um, the, the effort metric is is how much do we spend uh, per person on the state on education. And Utah's always been been in the top quarter of that. Um, it, it, we do better when it comes to it shows that we do care about our kids, that we do have an effort. And nowhere is that more true than this year. Um, we have have record, uh, record increases in funding coming through the legislature. And by the way, the legislature put this funding in their base budget. Now, I, this is a little wonky, but they, they, that means they pass a base budget at the very beginning of the year. In case we can't agree upon a budget, at least we have something going forward so we're not left in the, in the dark or government shutting down like happens with the federal government. We do stuff like that because we're very responsible here in Utah, and we don't want to act like uh, the, the, the problems we see in Washington, D.C. But this year, for the first time, they put that record increase in the base budget, which means we're not fighting over it at the end of the session. Over $400 million in the budget, increases in the budget, including an almost 6% increase in the WPU, which is the basic funding unit. 6% coming through a pandemic. We increase, now we're increasing 6%. That's, that's just huge. We've got a whole bunch of other things included in there, uh, teacher bonuses, add-ons for rural students, um, it's teacher and student success programs. So, so many good things are happening there. Um, the other thing, I, I don't know where you got your information about the Highway Patrol. They get budget increases every year. Um, we've added troopers o over the years, many troopers over the years, and uh, we, we work really hard to uh, to take care of our, our law enforcement as well. And we we invest uh, in infrastructure, in roads and, and others per capita about as much as any other state. In fact, we're routinely recognized as one of the best states when it comes to infrastructure investments. So um, so I, I think those are all very important, but, but you're right. Right. Education spending is always going to be a challenge, but it's a challenge we can't back away from. Um we're losing too many of our teachers. I've proposed big increases in uh, in teacher pay, um, and some of those are coming through this year. And and, and importantly, um, I'm really focused right now on on students, making sure that they're not getting left behind. Those students who don't have the same opportunities as kids in more affluent areas. So focusing on on kids in rural areas, um, kids in our multicultural communities, some of our less affluent neighborhoods, making sure that they have the same opportunities for success as every other kid because our state constitution guarantees a high quality education for every child and uh, we're we're not willing to rest until we make that promise real so thank you alan thanks for your call today we're going to take a break for the bottom of the hour news the number for you to be involved in this conversation with governor spencer cox 801-575-8255 we'll be right back Good afternoon, and thank you for joining us for Let Me Speak to the Governor. I'm Maria Shaleos, along with Utah Governor Spencer Cox. This is your opportunity each month to ask questions of the governor and the number to call 801-575-8255. Governor, we have Leon calling this afternoon from Ogden. And Leon, what is your question for the governor? Yes, thank you for taking my phone call. 
My question concerns the election. It seems like every year they start earlier with their advertisements, their campaign, campaign promises, and the amount of money that is spent on advertising is a lot of times redundant and very annoying because you hear the same commercial twice in a row or something. So my question boils down to why can't we set an amount of advertising money that the candidate can spend during his campaign? Thank you, Leon. I, I think uh, everyone agrees with <laughs> with what you just said, especially coming out of a, a campaign season where I, I my my family, I mean, they would have to turn off the TV during commercials because it was just it was just relentless. And, and uh, we've all felt that. And, and I know it's crazy. It's even worse since in other states, um, especially in some of those swing states on, on the on the national level. And so I, I definitely feel your, your pain. And uh, and with love to see some limitations like that. Unfortunately, uh, there, there's, a, there's a case, a Supreme Court case, I think it was back in the 70s, where the, the Supreme Court ruled that uh, that there's a, a First Amendment right, so it, it's a freedom of speech issue that uh, that allows for candidates um, to, to campaign as long um, as, as they want, um, and that prevents restrictions on the amount of money that can be spent on a campaign. And and that's the that's the real issue. Um, there, there's been a lot of attempts at campaign finance reform, but they've they've always limited how much an individual can give to a person. And and there have been, by the way, some constitutional issues there, some challenges around there. And and, and another Supreme Court case just a couple years ago that that allowed for these super PACs um, to to happen. And, and but but to, in in my mind, the the fairness issue has always been one. If we had a limitation on on how much could be spent or how you know how much time that people could use to to run for office, uh, and, and there are other countries that do that, by the way, um, and and they they seem to do okay. Uh, but but those that would take right now, it would really take a change to the Constitution um, to overcome that uh, that that Supreme Court ruling. So for, so for now, um, we're all stuck with those terrible campaign ads that run on a loop, and uh, and I apologize if mine were some of those. And I think we've come, come off such a, um, what, what do I want to say? We were bombarded this past election because of the outside money that came into our state due to the congressional race. That, that's exactly right, Maria. Uh, and, and that's that's true, um, especially, again, in these in these congressional races where um, even though they're local races, they have a national feel to them as one side's trying to win back Congress or, you know, th- there's a vulnerability and, and people see an opportunity there. And that's where we see a tremendous amount of money. And, and not only that, but the candidates can't coordinate on those and so oftentimes they tend to be a much more vitriolic uh, you know much much more hateful spiteful type ads which are, are the kind that Utahns have said they, they really don't like and and uh, we've, we've seen far too many of those all right let's go to our next caller that would be Todd in Linden good afternoon Todd what is your question for the governor I appreciate you taking the call. I have a quick question about the vaccine you you read online or you hear people talk but even reading online, I've heard it said that it's not that safe to get that vaccine. Uh, one person, I don't remember who this was, uh, on an online um, thing was talking about how it, it can be deadly to you. And we really strongly encourage you. She said, I beg you, I mean, the, her audience, 
not to get this vaccine. Can you please comment on that? And how do we know that this is a safe vaccine? Sure, Todd. Thank you for the question. And and uh, I'll tell you what's far more dangerous than the vaccine, and that's being online and uh, listening to some of the, the so-called experts who um, may, maybe have a following, um, but but don't, you know, are, anything can happen, again, on, on Facebook and, and uh, Twitter and, and some of these online platforms. It's it's very unfortunate that, that misinformation and bad information gets out there. What I can tell you is that the COVID-19 vaccines are safe. Um, and, and these clinical trials, th- there were no steps skipped in developing these vaccines. Um, it, it, we developed them faster than any time in history, yes, but we did it not by skipping uh, these these different stages, uh, of, but, but doing them concurrently. So doing them at the same time instead of sequentially, um, which allowed us to get the vaccines much more quicker, but also ensure that they were safe. And not not only that, but but by increasing the number of people who participated in the trials, these were the largest vaccine trials ever done um, in, in, in the world. I, I mean, we had tens of thousands, not just here in this country, but, but across the world, hundreds of thousands of people that participated in these trials, including some friends of mine who got the vaccine many, many months ago and uh, are perfectly healthy, perfectly happy. Uh, they, they, they have immunity from the, the, the coronavirus, and uh, it's, it's made a huge impact. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't some mild to moderate side effects that will happen from the vaccine. Uh, the, those, those side effects happen with every vaccine, and it means that the vaccine is actually working. What the vaccine does, again, is it triggers an immune response from your body so that the next time something like that, that vaccine, which is the virus, next time it sees that virus, it remembers it and has the ability to, uh, to attack that virus. And, and that's, that's the beauty of, of our bodies. That's the beauty of our immune system. That's how we were able to eradicate polio and and measles and all of these these terrible diseases that have been the scourge of humankind. And and so the the benefits of getting vaccinated just far outweigh the risks of of getting COVID-19 right now. And I would encourage people to to please get it. Um, Those side effects uh, now, I I have a couple people in my family who were finally able and eligible to get the the vaccine. I have not yet. Um, I, I know there were lots of governors and lots of uh, political officials across the country who did get the vaccine, but I didn't feel like that was right. But my, my reason for not getting it wasn't that I have any worries about it. It's that I don't think it's right for politicians to jump ahead in line. And uh, and so when it's my turn, when people who are 45 years old are eligible and, and, and uh, people with no underlying health conditions at that age are eligible, then you can bet I'm going to be standing in line just like everybody else to get that vaccine. And, and I certainly hope that more people will. We've lost far too many Utah to this insidious virus. We've now delivered uh, almost 500,000 vaccinations and we haven't had one death um, we, we've had some mild, you know, mild symptoms, some, a few with some moderate symptoms, but, but nothing serious. So, so please, please, please don't listen to, to those online voices that are telling you that this will kill you. Right. Let's take our next caller now. This is Christian in Springville. Good afternoon, Christian. Hi, so I'm actually high risk due to my congenital heart defect, and I'm wondering when those under age 30 could get the COVID vaccine if they have congenital heart defects. 
thank you. Um, great question. Again, I, I would encourage everyone to go and look at the list of, of those comorbidities, um, those underlying health uh, uh, conditions that, that qualify. Um, but uh, the congenital heart uh, defect it would qualify. And so, uh, the, again, those now the, the vaccines are not approved for, for young people yet. So those under the age of 16 um, would not qualify for the vaccine. But starting on March 1st, um, and, and yours is one of those, um, you would be eligible uh, to, to get the vaccine starting then. All right. And thank you for your call, Christian. Let's go to Jose, who is in Murray. Uh, good afternoon, Jose. How can we help you? Hello. Thanks for taking my call, Governor. I appreciate that you're going to be receiving the vaccine. I wanted to ask about home health care companions. We, like the workers in hospitals, nursing homes, routinely administer medication, do all kinds of health care work that other people do in hospitals in these settings. However, we are considered essential health care workers except by name. So I would like to be considered healthcare professional, essential worker to receive the vaccine with my mother, who is 70 years old. I'm not of that age yet. And I would like to receive it with her. I mean, I do everything with her. I'm always with her. We need to receive home health care from other people. We need to go to clinics and hospitals. There are other states that are allowing this, their seniors to receive it also with their home care companions. Can this be allowed, please, in the state of Utah? Thank you. Thank you, Jose, and, and, and thank you for the question, and, uh, and thank you for the incredible care that, that you give to, uh, to, to your mom. Um, I, I will say that uh, we, we are so blessed here in Utah. We have, we have many people that, and many more people every day who are in the same situation that you are, that are, are working diligently with, uh, with a parent or a grandparent uh, to, to, to uh, help them and to deliver uh, really life-saving health care, and, uh, and we recognize that. And, and we appreciate it. Um, let, let me just say that there, there are certain decisions that, that I, I hope that, that people never have to make. And one of those decisions is um, how to distribute a limited amount of potentially life-saving care, which is what we're talking about with this vaccine. Um, we have to make decisions with this vaccine. And uh, they're very, very, very difficult decisions. Um, wh while it is true that early in, in the virus, um, every state made that decision that uh, frontline healthcare workers should receive this virus, or excuse me, receive this vaccine, um, so that they could continue to care for the the, the general population. Um, we we have made a change. When I became governor, I made a change and said we will no longer be basing these vaccines on where you work or or what job you do, uh, but we will only be basing it on a risk assessment because we have a limited number. And so it, it's a, it's a difficult decision. I. I fully admit that, and uh, I, I know you're not happy with that decision, and there will certainly be others that criticize it, but, but I have to tell you, I, I firmly believe that it's the right decision. Um, by, by, uh, by making that decision, that allows your, your mom to get that vaccine a lot earlier than she would have otherwise, because again, it's a limited amount. Once we have too much of this, that won't be a problem and anybody can get it. But your risk of dying is very, very, very low your mom's risk of dying is very, very, very high. And so I have to choose all of the moms in, in your mom's condition 
And that means that people in your condition won't be able to get it yet. But if I gave it to you, then there's another 75-year-old mom out there who would not be getting it and who would be far more likely to die than you. And so while my heart breaks and I wish I could give it to you and everyone caring for anyone that, that is elderly, I, I, just, I just can't do that right now. I have to prioritize those. And, and by the way, again, those over the age of 65, 77% of our deaths right now. And, and that's where my focus has to be. Those age 30 and younger, um, it's a very, very low percentage. And so we'll get to you. We hope to get to you very quickly. Um, we really believe that by, uh, by May, um, everyone who wants the vaccine um, will, be able, will be eligible to get the vaccine, again, adults. And, and so we, we can't wait for that day. But stay patient and, uh, and please be careful and thank you for what you're doing. Oh, such difficult decisions. Uh, thank you, Governor Cox. Let's take a break here. The number to call with your questions for our final segment of Let Me Speak to the Governor, 801-575-8255. We'll be right back. Good afternoon, and thank you for joining us for Let Me Speak to the Governor. I'm Maria Shaleos, along with Utah Governor Spencer Cox. This is your opportunity each month to ask your questions of the governor. And let's go directly to Marty, who's in South Jordan. And Marty, what is your question? Okay, let's skip down to John, who is in Orem. And John, what is your question for the governor this morning or this afternoon? Okay. Well, I feel, I feel bad. John. I had a really great answer for Marty. I don't know what his question was. But let's I... go back to John in North Ogden. John, what is your question this morning? Yeah, hi, Governor. I'm just wondering if we're ever going to recognize construction workers in this pandemic. I mean, we've been essential from the beginning. We're keeping our state running. We go into people's houses every day. Or are we just going to have to wait for our age group to come up? You know, I have kids that are compromised. My wife's been vaccinated already. Um, I'm just kind of nervous about me with my son with lung disease and being in construction. Are, are we just going to have to wait like everybody else? or Because we have been essential. Yeah, John. There, look, there, let me let me just again thank you. Um, you. You have been essential, and, and construction workers. If you if you look at the economy, and, and really what carried us through those those most difficult months when uh, when when the whole world was shut down, um, c- construction was a huge piece of that. Especially here in the state of Utah, uh, as I, I look out the window right now, and I can see just dozens of construction projects that are that are that are happening. And and you've been you've been huge. Um, and, and, and this. Uh, unfortunately just goes to, to my my former answer we've uh, we've every industry has has a, a really good reason for why they're essential and, and you're right construction is at the top um, grocery store workers have been just incredible through this pandemic and uh, and are are really really important um, I, I will tell you I, I do get a similar question like this almost every day from um, from different industries from lobbyists and people who work in those industries we had air, the airline industry reach out to us and, and and talk about how essential their their workers are and and they're right they're not wrong it, it takes all of us to, to keep this economy moving and you guys have done more than your your share um, a, again unfortunately though um, we, we have to focus on those risk-based assessments and I, I know every family's different I'm glad your wife has been able to get the vaccine um, that's great news and we'll we'll certainly uh, cut down on the potential transmission uh, that could happen inside your home but uh, but we, we we'll just you know, if, if you're in construction and you're over the age of 65, you qualify. 
If you're in construction and you have a, an underlying, uh, one of these underlying health conditions, you'll qualify on March 1st. But we're, 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 we just really have to stick to that in order to reduce hospitalizations. And by the way, these are the things that are going to get us back to normal much more quickly um, as we reduce uh, our hospitalizations have come down um, and, and as we prevent death. Then, then the, the virus really does start to look more like the flu, right? We heard that from the beginning. This is just like the flu. Well, it turns out it's not like the flu at all. It's, it's 10 times more dangerous at least than, than the flu and we we've had uh, we we've had um over 1800 deaths in this state and uh, that's that's far more than we have in flu season um, but once we get again the most vulnerable uh, protected then it really does the numbers come down and it starts to look more like the flu and uh, we're, we're able to uh, to get people um, back to the the things that they want to do most so so i i wish i, I had a better answer but but i hope you know how grateful we are for the the work that you're providing and uh, and i hope you and, and your kids are able to stay safe uh, during the remainder of this pandemic governor let's take a call from shauna in pleasant grove good afternoon shauna hi first of all i just want to say thank you so much for keeping our city open our, our state open and our schools as well but my question is what do the numbers need to be so that the kids are not mandated to wear a mask in schools i think it's better for their socialization and um I, a lot of people don't know how effective the masks are anyway, but I think it would be good for our kids to not be not have to wear the masks in school. Thank you, Shauna, and I appreciate that. And thank you for recognizing um, what we've done to keep the state open and to, to keep schools going. I, I mean, it's amazing. This is a national debate that's raging right now about kids being in schools, and Utah's looking around going, you know, we, we've, we've been doing this. We've been doing this uh, since, uh, you know, since the school year began, and uh, we've been able to keep our kids in school. Um, I, I would like nothing more than to, to, to be done with masks. Um, I, I'm wearing a mask right now, and uh, you can probably tell as I'm trying to 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 get, get catch my breath as as I answer these questions, um, but but we do have very good evidence about the effectiveness of masks. Um, that that evidence comes uh, in in many different forms, but BYU did one of the the, the most robust studies and bringing all of the studies nationwide together um, that that have proven that, that masks really really do help cut down on the transmission of this. Uh, also interesting to note if you look at the flu over the past five years. Uh, the average um, rate of flu in our state, and compare it to this year, uh, it's it's almost non-existent. Which again, which which shows how effective our measures have been, and and, and conversely shows how much more dangerous this virus is because uh, we, we've been able to almost eliminate the flu from the state. But but this virus is so transmissible that uh, that even with everything we, we've done, it still makes it difficult. And so um, we're, we're very hopeful. We do have a um, the transmission index that you. You can find at coronavirus.utah.gov that talks about uh, everything that changes as our uh, as our rate of transmission comes down in the state. Um, but but the the mask mandate is the last thing that we'll look like be, look at because it is the the easiest and the least obtrusive um, metric. So it's it's masks that are going to allow us to do a lot of the other things much more quickly. And uh, and then and then once people have the opportunity to receive the vaccine scene. And I think that's really important. And, and, and we, again, we're, we're hoping by, by the, the beginning of May that, uh, or middle May, sometime in there, depending on how much vaccine comes, that we will be able to open it up to anyone that wants one. And at that point, 
once everyone has a chance to get the vaccine, that's when, um, that's when, you know, then it's on you, right? It's, it's, it's not upon everyone to protect everyone else. It's now your decision and, and your choice. And that's, uh, that's at the latest when we would be able to, uh, to get rid of those mask mandates. So we're hoping they come sooner than that as, as the virus continues to dissipate. Um, but we're, we're working very closely with our health professionals and school professionals to, uh, to get that right. Governor, we just have a couple of minutes left in the program, so let's wrap up with how difficult has it been for you with so much conflicting information going out from so many different people about COVID? Well, Maria, this has been a challenge um, before COVID. Um, we, we used to live in a nation where shared facts were were just were, were a thing. It was it was just kind of assumed, you know. And, and I, of course, we had our problems. I'm not just lamenting for the good old days, but we had we had certain news sources that everyone trusted. And even if you disagreed, at least we were starting with the same set of facts. And I think that that's been really one of the most difficult things. Well, I, I would say two. One is now we we don't have shared facts. That people are getting their facts from different places and and they're not even facts unfortunately but they're taken as such and then the second is the the politicization um, uh, of those facts um, so so now it's we only believe that the science that that argues for our our own uh, belief system but we don't believe the science for other things so you can see it on mass and conversely you can see it on schools reopening where it almost flips right and so that's really where we're struggling but we appreciate partners like like you guys who help us to to, to get out the best information and to keep people safe. But even with talking about just when do you think things will get back to normal, it depends on who you ask. Well, that, that, that's exactly right. It does depend on who you ask. And, and so, uh, and, and, and there's a difference, right? The, there's kind of this, this, this tug and pull between um, best case scenario on paper by someone with a PhD versus kind of the practical aspects of, of how people live their individual lives and the choices they make, right? So it's not just about the facts of the virus. There's also kind of a social science piece to this too, where where people aren't going to stay locked up forever and people aren't going to stay. We're, we're a social people and we need to be together. And so trying to balance those things to allow people the opportunity to to lower the risk level, but still do the things that they need to do to be to, to be human, quite frankly. And that's what we're trying to do. Governor, thank you so much for being with us. We look forward to having the same conversation next month. And Thanks, you've been Thank you. And you've been listening to Let Me Speak to the Governor on KSL News Radio. It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts.